Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my pleasure to have a friend of mine and our guest today, Pete Kazanji, who is the founder of my favorite resource for learning about sales, Modern Sales Pros. And we'll talk more at the end about how to join that if you're not a member. And he's also the founder of a very innovative sales analytics and insight company called Atrium, which we'll learn a little bit more about as we go as well. So thanks so much. It'll be fun. You and I uh, always always tend to have a blast, so I'm sure this won't be any different. Oh, yes. Nerd, nerd, uh, nerd, nerd explosion. Yes, sales nerd heaven. Well, I, I start every podcast by asking our guest, to share what their favorite sales or leadership book was? I could cheat and I could say the book I wrote on sales for founders. It's called Founding Sales. But I think my favorite book there is one called The Goal. It's uh, this really cool operations research book framed in the context of a novel about a protagonist who's trying to turn around this struggling factory it was written in the 80s, but essentially it takes Toyota lean manufacturing, kind of pull manufacturing concepts, and it turns it into this uh, really cool novel. So you can kind of learn about running systems and running a factory, which is kind of how I think about modern sales organizations. I did read that book back in business school when we were learning about the whipsaw effect in manufacturing. So I, I found it quite useful. It's a good book. I, one I would definitely recommend to folks as well, even though it's outside of the world of sales, it will help them think better about sales. Second question before we dive into the main topic of the day, which is all going to be about sales analytics and KPIs, something I know you and I are both passionate about and you are super well-versed in. What's the first thing you ever remember selling? I think probably the first thing that I ever sold was in Boy Scouts, actually. And I think it was, uh, we did fundraising by selling C's candy around the holidays. And so I, I remember doing that and kind of like the awkward feeling of, of asking somebody to buy something and then kind of evolving it and trying to figure out like, okay, why would they want to buy this? There's obviously me and there, you know, that's one motivation. But then there's also the fact that they need to give gifts to other people and maybe they're behind the power curve on that. And so I'm actually delivering a solution to them where they don't have to go to the mall, what have you. <laughs> so that was kind of the first thing that I sold at any appreciable scale. And then, of course, the first like technology thing that I sold, of course, was uh, Talentbin, my, my previous company, the recruiting software company. So similar to chocolate, but a little different. You just reminded me of the school fundraisers. And I remember having to go next door and, and sell to my all to my neighbors. And I, I remember feeling super uncomfortable about asking my neighbors to buy this stuff. Yeah. Some people feel super uncomfortable doing that. And then some people become salespeople. What do you think it is that pushes them past that? I think everybody's uncomfortable with it. Even salespeople, like in one of the first chapters in my book on sales for founders, founding sales, I talk about sales mindset changes where I just think it's an unnatural thing to kind of like ask other people for resources per se. And I think the reality is that you just, you get over it with practice and repetition. And if you don't get over it, you don't have success. And there's kind of like, you know, a natural outcome there where you cease to progress. And then if you do get over it, you just become completely anesthetized and kind of calloused to it. And that's just part of going through the process of going from 
being somebody who is not a seller to somebody who is a seller is essentially getting comfortable with, you know, asking and getting comfortable, of course, with rejection, because (laughs) whether it's 80% of the time or 60% of the time or 50% of the time, you're going to be rejected. Do you think you have to have a deep belief in the product in order to be able to be a successful seller? Like, have you ever seen sellers who were great at their jobs who you don't think believed in the product they were selling? In the modern sales environment, I don't think there's a reason. Given the scarcity of salespeople, the demand for salespeople, and I'm framing this in the context of technology sales, I don't really think there's a need for somebody to be a seller for something they don't believe in. And then moreover, do they believe in it? And are they excited about it? And then there's the second kind of more important version of that, like, does it actually work and deliver value? And so if you have a situation where somebody's selling something that doesn't work and doesn't deliver value, the prototypical example of this is like selling snow to Eskimos. Like, oh, that guy's such a great salesperson. He could sell snow to Eskimos. My response to that is that that's actually immoral. And like that salesperson is a terrible human being. And in a modern sales environment, really what a salesperson is, is is they are a business consultant. They're a consultant that just happens to have a predilection for a particular type of solution. I guess my response to you would be, I would hope that people wouldn't be selling things that they're not excited about. And moreover, I certainly hope that they wouldn't be selling things that don't deliver utility and value to their customer because they're actually destroying value in the world. I had never really thought about that separation, which is there's the does it work and am I passionate about it? It makes me think back to my time at Gartner where I spent most of my career. I definitely believed it worked for our customers on the vendor side and on the technology end user side. In the majority of my career there, I also was super passionate about the product. I was excited by the product. And then towards the end, part of why I ultimately left was I still believed it worked, but I I lost the excitement personally for the product. So yeah, that's a really good distinction. A big motivator for me for where I've gone subsequently was, was really to ask myself that question. Is this product something that I would feel proud selling to a, to a friend or a family member? That's my test. There's actually a really amazing conversation thread going on on MSP on modern sales right now about SDR to AE career progressions. And I think that there's, there's an S curve, right, where you start hitting points of diminishing returns. There's actually two going on right now on MSP. There's one about SDR to AE progression, and there's another one talking about retaining AEs past an 18-month or 24-month interval. And I think the important thing is to make sure that people are always learning and they're advancing their career goals, whether that's in the case of an SDR, you know, becoming a more talented SDR with better skill profile and progressing along the path to becoming an account executive, or in the case of account executive, it's selling more complicated deals or bigger deals that have a more complex sales motion or incremental products or or what have you. Obviously, there are some people to whom it's like, no, I'm actually, I work for the purpose of earning money and then my fulfillment and challenges at home per se or what have you. And that's fine. There's no dirt on that. But I think the important thing is to make sure that people are learning and they're developing their skills and they're challenged and excited. You'll have a feedback loop where if somebody is at the top of an S-curve and kind of plateauing, you actually will see it in their motivation. And then it shows up in their metrics and then it shows up in their performance. You could have somebody who is at the top of the S-curve and like they're really good at what it is that they're doing. But if learning and progression is important to them, there's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where it may impact their performance by virtue of the fact that even though they're as expert as they've ever been at selling that thing, 
by virtue of the fact that they're bored, I suppose, it actually impacts their ability to sell that thing. If you're a sales leader, you need to think about the skill and the will of the individual, and that's going to wax and wane based on not just the extrinsic piece, right? Not just their quota attainment, but also learning and development and opportunities. I'm hard pressed to think of anyone who above a certain income level, right? Where you meet the needs of yourself and your family is not hungry for actualizing themselves in some way. So one of the things that I'm super blessed to have in my life is modern sales um, because I just have so much surface area with all these amazing sales organizations that I just constantly get to learn from. And so one of the sales organizations that I have a huge crush on is Greenhouse, the applicant tracking system, hiring software company. They're based in New York. I was, I was there in their office yesterday morning, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So their CEO is a buddy of mine, Dan Chait, his co-founder, uh, John Strauss, as another friend of mine, but they're a human capital company, right? Like they build software that helps other organizations attract and hire and onboard and retain high quality human capital. And so they certainly don't have a situation of the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? Where they do a bad job of, of hiring and onboarding, what have you. They actually do a phenomenal job, but then they also do it in, inside the organization as well. So actually Atrium just hired a new head of sales to, to replace me <laughs> as our head of sales. Uh, his name is Aaron Malamed. He was at um, Greenhouse for four years. He was at Namely for two years before that. And one of the things that I was super fired up about when I was recruiting him to come work at Atrium was he had done all these different roles at Greenhouse. So he ran the SMB sales team, but then they needed somebody to build and run the SDR team. So he took that on and like, you know, packaged up this SMB team and handed it to somebody else. And then for a while he ran sales operations. And then after that, he then pivoted when they were creating their greenhouse CRM product, which is a new product line. He pivoted and went back to being an individual seller to kind of like pioneer that sales motion. And so I think what I, when I hear that, I'm like, that is a great way of making sure that you retain very high quality talent, make sure that they're building different muscles that are going to make them more of a five-tool player. And as you can see, he's now our head of sales, which is a role that is one step beyond what he was doing at Greenhouse. But the reason why he was so attractive as a candidate was because he had built all those muscles by virtue of the investment that Greenhouse had done. And so like I see that, I'm like, man, that's something that I'd like to be able to do in my sales organizations is make sure that people are constantly building new muscles and excited about things. Because if you can retain people for an extra six months or an extra 12 months with that, like all the institutional knowledge and kind of like, you know, sales motion muscle memory baked into them, that's really powerful for your organization it really can be a source of advantage. It can be like a secret weapon if you do a good job at it. The productivity of your organization is going to be so much higher as your average tenure increases and the institutional knowledge and so on increases, help people achieve their goals uh, and get paid, but also make sure that they have exactly the right skills they need to hit the ground running as an AE. Yeah, all of these have virtuous feedback cycles, right? Because you do that and now if your quote unquote cost of candidate acquisition drives down, well, one of the things I always talk about is how hiring is the pipeline above the pipeline. Do you have enough butts in the seat and are they executing? Hiring isn't just like magic. You can't just you know go to Amazon and be like, I'd like three account executives, please. You actually have to hire them. So to the extent that you have inbound leads, you have high NPS, you have good referrals going on, all those sort of things that indicate that this is a place that people want to come work and this is a human, this is a leader or a sales manager who I want to come work for, 
that is a powerful asset and a source of advantage to your organization. This was front and center to me recently. Atrium is hiring a bunch of account executives right now. All throughout 2018, I was kind of like iterating our sales motion and driving us towards product market fit and then go to market fit. And so now we have that. We have a very repeatable sales motion where you just you know plug a sharp account executive into it and then boom, like they're on their merry way. We have a three-month ramp, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was putting together a deck on why it's great to be an account executive at Atrium. And one of the slides I put together was, all of my former staff from Talentbin who are now sales leaders in various capacities. You know, this is a great slide to show people that, yes, we invest, I invest in my staff and like, look, they go on to do great things. I think that is a big thing about people wanting to join particular organizations is that they know that having that organization on their resume one way or the other is actually going to serve them incredibly well. Yeah. I think that's also a great selection criteria for people who are looking for jobs is like go find those companies who have reputations for developing excellent talent. And that doesn't have to be Google and Amazon and whatever. It can be smaller companies that have these stellar, quote unquote, employer brands. You end up with these, these narrow sliced kind of almost like skill profile diasporas or skill profile mafias. So, and this is one of the things that I really enjoy about working at Atrium. We just get to interact with tons and tons of sales operations organizations and sales leadership organizations, but you start seeing patterns. Right. So like sales law, for instance, really has an impressive sales operations diaspora. Obviously, everybody knows about like LinkedIn's sales operations posse. So our head of customer success here at Atrium is a woman named Karen Rohrer. She used to lead sales operations at Double Dutch back in the day. And then she did sales operations for LinkedIn's Linda Business Unit. So everybody knows about the LinkedIn sales operations function. Great. You start kind of seeing these, like not only do they come into an organization, they're attracted there because it's really powerful. There's a powerful recruiting brand, you know, that they're going to be invested in. And then when they go to other places, you know that they're essentially going to replicate that behavior. As a sales leader, I rely so heavily on our RevOps team, as all do. And I was lucky to join a place where I should have probably vetted that before I came because it would be a key criteria. But I was lucky to come into a place where, you know, we've got other insanely talented people like Sophie Darch and Megan Chen and the list goes on and on of super talented RevOps people. So yeah, I'm totally with you. I like to kind of couch the learning journey of metrics into people's career progression. Why don't we just jump straight to TalentBin and talk about sort of how you started to think about sales metrics and KPIs there? My first experience in the technology entrepreneurship was a, a recruiting software company called TalentBin that I founded with my current co-founder from Atrium, Jason Heidema. He and I founded it in um, 2010. And so previously, he and I, we come from not terribly dissimilar backgrounds. My background is in product marketing and product management. His background is in product management and engineering. And so with TalentBin, as we built the product, which is essentially a recruiting search engine, kind of like LinkedIn recruiter, but for the whole internet. And so we would sell that to technical recruiting organizations because it was a way better way of recruiting software engineers than using LinkedIn recruiter. So at the beginning of TalentBin, I didn't know anything <laughs> about sales. And, and so I kind of was approaching things with child's eyes. And so I started figuring out as, as I was the original seller, and then as I brought on a couple of SDRs and a couple of AEs, I started kind of like puzzling through how the system of the sales organization works. The initial unit of the seller was me. Then you have abstraction where you have an SDR feeding an account executive 
as I started kind of realizing and applying previous learnings, whether it's having read the goal or or just being a systems thinker in general, started to realize that this was a system and it can be run as such, but of course it would need to be instrumented, right? And so you need to understand what the precursors are that were important and what the inputs were and then what the outputs needed to be, what those expected levels of input and output would be. And then of course, then you have to layer in KPIs and metrics of quality levels because at the end of the day sales output is is the result of a high quantity of high quality selling activity you can have and a lot of times what organizations will do is they'll focus on the quantity without realizing that you actually have to instrument that the high quantity of execution that is happening also is still high quality <laughs> and and so i started kind of realizing that with talentbin and we went from having two sdrs and two aes to then four and four and then eventually by the time the organization was acquired by monster in 2014, uh, I think we had around eight account executives and eight SDRs and a similar number of customer success folks. But we had a machine that was running. And of course, I had hacked that all together in Salesforce in a pretty substantial fashion. So lots of data being captured, but then also the reporting harness was in place in order to then be able to look at the quantity and quality of selling activity that was going on there. And then, of course, I would <laughs> have to be my own sales operations analyst looking at that. Uh, and so that was kind of my first experience, both like realizing that a sales organization essentially is a factory and that you can run it as such messier <laughs> and like sloppier. I don't mean to make it sound like salespeople are just like machines or what have you. It's a system. Yes, things are messy. Like our sellers are messy. Also, clients are messy, <laughs> right? But that doesn't mean it can't be instrumented. I'm with you. And I, I mean, it also is a factor of scale, right? Like if you look at the individual salesperson, there is a variation in performance. But if you look across a large team, and especially as you get into enterprise, I mean, you can't manage to the outliers, right? You got to manage to the average. If you're going to forecast, that is the most reliable forecast you can create. Yeah. And not just if you're going to forecast, because I think when people use the term forecast, oftentimes people think about like, what's going to come in this month? What's going to come in this month? But like enlarge the definition of forecast to be like, if you're going to run an organization in a way that creates enterprise value and acquires revenue in a predictably scalable fashion, then you need to understand what your reliable unit of production is. Absolutely what your reliable unit of input is, what your reliable unit. So you can't say like, you know what, I'm going to get all magical SDRs, <laughs> that like set 15 meetings a week. It's like, really? Cool. Are you going to get them at the magical SDR shop? Or should we instead maybe say, actually, the reality is, is that based on the physics of our market and how many calls an SDR with 40 hours or 50 hours in a week can make or how many emails they can send, you know, the amount of time it takes to put together a thoughtful appeal via email, et cetera, et cetera. If you then break that down and do bottoms up and say, yeah, you know what? It probably seems like, you know, eight, eight meetings is reliable, not 15. Okay, great. So if we know that that's the case and we know, you know, that turns into this many opportunities for our account executives, which then cool. With our account executives, what is the appropriate, reliable expectation of a win rate? What is a appropriate and reliable expectation of an average selling price? And then you harness that all together in order to say, great, can we then support these unit economics with what we have to pay for account executives in our market? Oh, shoot, it looks like in order to have a 20% or a 25% cost of sale, I have with our current pricing, I'm going to have to pay this account executive 
$50,000 a year. Uh-oh, I guess I have to move this sales organization to Utah or what have you. So I think it's important to just like be eyes wide open about these things. You were talking about activity and output, right? And I couldn't agree with you more that activity gets decomposed into both quality and quantity of activity. I don't know if you ever came across or are familiar with the book, Cracking the Sales Management Code by Jason Jordan and Michelle Vazana. Yeah, I love it. And I buy it for new managers. Like whenever an account executive gets promoted into management, I send them the chapter on sales management from Founding Sales. And then I buy them the copy of Cracking the Sales Management Code because it aligns 100% with what we do at Atrium because we make advanced sales analytics, continuously monitored performance analytics software. It's all about instrumenting all of those things, the inputs, the intermediaries, the outputs, and having it be continuously monitored. It's kind of a new concept for a lot of people, right? Because it's a set of people who are super intimate with operations research or what have you. And sales organizations is not a gigantic set. It is an enlarging set thanks to revenue operations and sales operations organizations. And so one of the things that we have to be very proactive about at Atrium is helping to empower and educate the managers, the managers who end up using our software. And so opening their eyes to the fact that, yes, you can and ought to instrument these 8AEs that you're responsible for, these 10 SDRs that you're responsible for. And the way that you do that is by decomposing the things that they ought to be up to and then instrumenting it and monitoring it on a recurring basis. We are very proactive about doing that, whether it's from giving people books or from our customer success standpoint, or we actually do a bunch of recurring workshops in San Francisco and New York, the Data-Driven Manager Workshop. It's a day-long event to kind of help managers and, and leaders get more crisp around their metrical excellence. Yeah, I think that education is critical. I, I did a study recently where I pulled every SDR who had ever worked for Salesforce. Really? And yeah, yeah. So I, I pulled the list, gave it to Upwork folks to pull all their bio data in. I looked at how many of them had STEM degrees, science, technology, engineering, or math. And it's tiny, like 5% or less have those kind of technical degrees. So that means that if SDRs are who becomes AEs, that means you have very, very few AEs who actually come in with a strong quantitative background. In my experience, I'm curious if you feel the same way, like they're never going to become data scientists. The most powerful thing from an analytics standpoint is not super crazy advanced data science, but instead is, is usually just better tier one and tier two awareness. And the vendor class oftentimes is happy to spin a tail about how you, know, you need to have these crazy advanced analytics as opposed to if you think about where most of the problems show up for SDRs or AEs or, or what have you, they end up being things that are very observable from more kind of core metrics. To your point about skill versus will earlier, very frequently, the root cause of most sales performance issues is an insufficient amount of, of activity. It's not rocket science in order to detect that, but you have to detect it, right? You have to be continuously paying attention to that. That level of awareness is something that can be easily taught to you know, AE managers, SDR managers, what have you, with a, a thoughtful curriculum. It's interesting to see the evolution of the tools in the space. And I mean, I know Atrium is doing this because we're customers of Atrium. So on the progression from here is the data, right, which was the early days, and managers now need to interrogate and investigate the data and slice and dice using BI tools. 
the next phase is awareness, right? And it's basically like, here's the weird data. Here's the aberrations, either positive deviations or negative deviations. And then, you know, the ultimate, and we're getting very close to this. I know you guys are doing some of it already, which is, okay, it's, it's not just here's the weird data. It's like, here is what you should do right now. Like if you're a manager, go talk to this AE because they are showing the pattern that they're about to leave. Or go talk to this AE because they're showing the pattern that they're a superstar. So they're, and you need to talk to them, figure out what they're doing and teach it to the other people. Like that, that's where the real value comes in. Yeah, precisely. And one of the jokes that we like to say about Atrium is it's, it's kind of like a herd of 22 year old sales operations analysts, right? Because you take somebody who's a bright eyed and bushy tailed uh, STEM grad out of you know, Georgia Tech or you know, NYU or, or what have you, and you put them in front of Excel. And they can detect these things for you. They can say, hey, I think this rep over here has this issue or like has a decline in the amount of customer facing meetings that he's engaging with, engaging in over time, especially as compared to the other you know, 10 mid-market sales account executives in this organization. Here, you should do something about it. Like that's a really good level one insight, which oftentimes if you don't have human eyes on these things, you're not going to see those things. You have to actually consume this information in order to detect those aberrations. The level two, my joke about that is it's like the 26-year-old sales ops uh, insight is, hey, this person is having bookings issues. Their bookings issues are not because they don't have enough opportunities. And, and actually, their win rate is fine. They actually have a problem with respect to their average selling price. And I know this because it's low as compared to the other mid-market account executives in this organization. By the way, I went one beyond that, and I noticed that the reason why their ASP is low, if you look at their average opportunity size and you look at how many meetings they're having as split by large opportunities versus medium opportunities versus small opportunities, they have a low average opportunity size, and they're spending all their time with those small ops. So maybe what we should do is have them spend more time with larger ops, and it might resolve this. You hear that, and you're like, okay, cool. That's not like crazy advanced data science. And it's not. It's just statistics and investigation and, and kind of like going up a decision tree. But it's still not easy. And the cool thing about it is that a computer can do it very easily and bubble that thing up proactively. And if you ask why, 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 right, that is the key. And ultimately, the answer is it's often an easy answer. It's just that there are a thousand things that you need to track otherwise and hard to know which is the one easy answer to give. And yeah, I think the systems do a great job of that. On the why, why, why thing, that's so fascinating that you bring that up because that is kind of core to Toyota Lean Manufacturing and Pull Manufacturing was the five whys. So every time there's a failure on a line, always what you wanted to do is figure out not the immediate impact, but then what was the upstream thing that impacted it. And that's like kind of where this notion of five whys came from is because you wanted to go upstream in order to resolve the root cause. And then, of course, solve that root cause such that that didn't show up on the other 10 assembly lines for the listeners if they're going to build like if they're not satisfied with their kpis and their sales metrics if and they're going to build out a better infrastructure that helps them run their business what what advice would you leave listeners with so first you need to know the metrics that you should care about one two you need to then collect the data in order to be able to instrument those three you then need to build the reporting in order to look at those metrics Doing that is important and you need to have an intention to do that and, and resources like modern sales, thoughtful sales operations folks and what have you can help solve those things. And of course, vendors like Atrium are more than happy to help with that as well. 
what you also have to do is you have to commit to consume it. Step four and step five is actually continuously monitor this and look at what's going on in order to identify aberrations. And then when you see them, you actually have to dig in and say, okay, what is the root cause here? Why is this person's win rate off compared to others? Or, okay, cool, this person's right. They don't have enough ops. Why? Why do they not have enough ops? What is the upstream thing there? So I think like one is, is you know, making sure that you're aware of that maturity model and where you are on it and where your gaps are. I think the second thing is really just recognizing, I think we're in a shift right now where organizations are going from kind of old school selling to what I like to refer to as modern selling. And I think there's some resistance there where people who maybe feel that they don't have that skill or incentive to think that things are still kind of in the old school, not instrumentable, not repeatable, kind of more of a black art mindset. I think those folks oftentimes are like, you know what, I don't need this, this mumbo jumbo, I don't need this analytics, like, I just care about outputs. I think the important thing is to really recognize that things actually have changed, and to commit to being analytically excellent. It's okay if you're not there right now, because, you know, people, if you don't have the initial muscle, that's fine. You just have to commit to building it. But I think it, it's important to realize that we've crossed that Rubicon. And, and if you don't commit to doing that, you're probably not going to be a sales leader for much longer, right? Like Because sales math is something that is going to be required to be in the tool set for sales leaders and for sales operations in the future. The last thing, if you do commit to being operationally analytically excellent, but recognize that you have a shortfall, that's okay just get help. There are wonderful resources like cracking the sales management code or modern sales or you know fill in the blank. They can help you get better at it, but it's about recognizing that the world has changed and then having an intention and then just getting better at it. Your advice keeps me gainfully employed because I've figured out that my groove is being a sales ops and strategy person. So I get to be the propeller head and the sales nerd to help supplement the folks I work with. Pete, I want to thank you so much again uh, for the listeners. Again, that's Pete Kazanji you've been listening to. He is the founder of Modern Sales Pros, hands down the best place to go learn about sales and as an added bonus free. So just find someone to refer you into Modern Sales Pros. And he is also the founder of an amazing sales analytics company called Atrium. Pete, thank you for being on the show. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.